So this morning, I want to explore um, quite a powerful and wonderful theme, which could be expressed in a few different ways. Um, in Western traditions, it's ex been expressed as um, loving your enemies. Coming from, especially from uh, Christian tradition, we could also, in a Buddhist context, talk about developing metta, or sometimes translated as loving kindness, or friendliness towards those with whom we have difficulties, right on up to the ones we have the most difficulty with. And that is, can be presented as a core intention of our practice. It can seem rather demanding or rather idealistic or rather difficult, but I believe that it's truly the core intention of our practice. And so I want to explore that um, today, and my sense is that today I want to give more foundational understandings of what that means to love one's enemies or to have a general attitude of warmth or friendliness as an intention towards everyone, including people who are difficult for oneself. To explore what that means, basically, and then to suggest a few foundational practices that we can follow uh, in, if you wish, in the next uh, two weeks, and then I'm going to be back here in two weeks and then the week after that, and I want to follow up the theme with bringing out the, some of the further understandings and practices related to that theme of loving one's enemies, or intending, <coughs> intending to do that. And I was uh, reflecting on this really uh, Partly because during the retreat that I was on, that came out of a week ago, it actually was a theme that was there some on the retreat, that, I, that for whatever reason it was coming up some in my practice, this theme of how to work with people with whom there are really challenging uh, relationships. And it also came up in my dreams. I think I mentioned last week that I had dreams on this theme, and I had, I remember especially a long, long discussion that I had with Cornell West, who some of you know, who's, uh, in which we were particularly looking into the ideas of Martin Luther King, for whom, of course, the attitude of bringing love and care and the possibility of reconciliation towards one's so-called enemies was right at the center of his work. And so in this dream, we had this long discussion, we're discussing King, and I think it came up in several other dreams during, during the retreat. And um, it was very, very helpful discussions. <laughs> you know. and, and so, and I also remembered that a version of this theme was prompted by this group that uh, several years ago, I asked the group, what do you want to explore? What themes should we bring up in our talks and discussions? And one of the core ideas was how to practice with people we find difficult. And that turned into a series of talks, and I eventually did a day-long here at Spirit Rock called The Dharma of Difficult People. And I think I put difficult people in quotation marks. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll explore why that is in a little while, because I don't know if they're objectively difficult people, but um, I'll come back to this. But difficult people are people with whom we have difficult experiences. Interesting shift of perspective. What characterizes a difficult person for me I have difficult experiences such as anger, frustration, irritation, sadness, grief, despair, and uh, self-righteousness, often. So, so we'll come back to that because it's, it's a core theme. It's really, we, we like to think 
that difficult people or enemies are just by their nature wrong or bad or suitable for harsh judgment. And we don't always acknowledge our own role in, the, in this process. And that's a lot of what the, the theme will be. And so, uh, so I'll give that overview both of why it's an important theme, some foundational practices, and I think near the end I want to do a guided practice that will help help us if we choose to give this as a focus for the next few weeks. Some, uh, some practices we have, but I want to give some further practices that you may not have done before. And I also hope during this time to have a, I, I want to play, I brought in, so to speak, a guest speaker. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry for the pun. <laughs> and, I, and I want to um, play a, a remarkable account uh, later. I, I, hope, I hope I can have time for that. So first, first this, this uh, ideal of loving one's enemies is quite strong in a number of different traditions. You know, we know probably most of us from our uh, either religious upbringing or, or knowledge of the Jewish Christian <coughs> heritage and perhaps other, other religions, we know this very uh, powerful approach that we find in the teachings of Jesus. You know, and I'll just remind us of a few of those teachings. They're quite powerful. This is from uh, Matthew 5.44. I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them whom, which despitefully use you and persecute you. Very strong teaching. Of course, uh, it was made with full awareness, I assume, that this is a very challenging, to say, one of the most challenging possible practices or perspectives we can take. Other statements. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. <coughs> and another statement that actually sounds a little closer to uh, Buddhist passages, Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. And so we find very parallel teachings and associated practices in the Buddhist tradition, particularly connected with the practice of metta, you know, which we translate as loving-kindness, but it's probably more accurately translated as friendliness, or a general sense of a warm and kind friendliness. The root of metta, etymologically, is connected with words meaning friend. And yet it's also, uh, it's also very much related to core teachings about how we transform hatred and violence. So I'll get to metta in a moment, but we, we may remember the famous passage in the Dhammapada. One translation goes, violence never ceases through hatred. It is only through love that it ceases. This is an ancient law, which could suggest how one is even towards people with whom there's friction and towards whom hatred may arise. That Love, the, the actual word in the Pali uh, could probably a more, little more accurately be translated as non-hatred, you know, which would be associated with metta or loving-kindness. In this translation, it's translated as love a little bit, little bit liberally. And then you, you, we know from the metta sutta that the, and from our metta practice that the ideal of our metta practice is to develop metta to the point where it's universal. That's the aspiration. To develop the sense of friendliness ultimately towards all beings. And those of you who've done systematic uh, metta practice and have had that training know that we 
start where the loving kindness flows most easily, but gradually we move towards having loving kindness towards neutral people, towards difficult people, and ultimately towards all beings. And there's an inclusiveness of the quality of caring that is certainly pointed to in our practice as an aspiration. So again, a a few passages from the Metta Sutta. And listen for the inclusiveness that is is, uh, expressed. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. The inclusiveness that's suggested as a core intention of our practice. Another passage, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. So it's the direction of our practice. It points to some of the depths possible in this practice. And it's both an aspiration and a practice. And I'll come in a moment to to say, okay, we may be inspired and even say, yes, I want to follow that path. And then how do we do it concretely and practically? And one of the great benefits that we've inherited in being connected with Buddhist tradition is that we have a number of very practical methods and understandings and a few thousand years of history of experience that let us practice in that way towards that intention. And it's very interesting, at our loving-kindness retreats, we often have people from other religious traditions come. We have... uh, Christian monks, nuns, ministers, we have rabbis come. Because to the best of my understanding, even though the general approaches of those traditions at their best inspire something similar, they don't always have concrete methods to train, as it were, the awakened heart. That's what I've been told by by people who are steeped in, for example, in Christian contemplative tradition. Interestingly, the, this approach of loving one's enemies, which for some of us can certainly be challenging, but there may be a point where we don't have in our everyday lives people we necessarily call enemies. Either we've sorted them out, ended relationships, <laughs> you know, uh, quit that job <laughs> which had this person in it or whatever. And we may not have that so much, although I'm sure we all have some challenging relationships. But I do hear from people, I don't really have anyone who's an enemy in my life. You know, is that, how many of you have people who are at least difficult in your lives? Okay, so (laughs) maybe uh, not quite relevant, but I do hear that from time to time. But but uh, but then one of the other great sources of inspiration on this intention to love one's enemies or to develop this kind of warmth towards people whom one finds difficult have come from people who are trying to transform oppression. You know, that one of the most powerful ways this ideal has been expressed in the last uh, hundred years has been through the work of people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Dorothy Day who have brought in nonviolence as their way of talking, I think, about the same intention. And they've been quite explicit about saying that the intention of our 
nonviolent work in relationship to oppressive forces, both individual people and in the case of Gandhi, a whole nation, was ultimately to bring about transformation in such a way as that one could in the end become friends with the oppressor. Quite remarkable stance, right? And yet we have that. The reason for this ultimately comes from their understandings of the nature of our being. And this is what we'll explore in exploring this this teaching and dirt-related practices. So, for example, uh, Gandhi thought that the reason that nonviolence is appropriate is that our basic nature is that of goodness. He said, nonviolence is the law of our being, he said. That it reflects a depth of understanding about who we really are. And, and so we'll see that the suggestion is that actions and behaviors which are hurtful and harmful come from a more superficial part of our being than our deepest nature. So this is a claim. It's, it's really the, in our practice, the invitation is to realize that personally so that we know that more and more. You know? But that, that is, as it were, the finding or the teaching that's connected with this. Another statement from Gandhi. Belief in nonviolence is based on the assumption that human nature in its essence is one and therefore unfailingly responds to the advances of love. Yes. Um, belief in nonviolence is based on the assumption that human nature in its essence is one and therefore unfailingly responds to the advances of love. And this is a passage from King. I say to you, I have decided to stick to love. (laughs) For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today. I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. And I have seen too much hate. I have seen... uh, too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizens counselors in the South to want to hate myself because every time I see it, I know that it does something to their faces and their personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving against wrong when we do it. One who has love has the key that that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. And I, I would say that working with this teaching and associated practices is actually key to the survival of humans in this world. That because there's a, there are a lot of things that we could find problematic, uh, whether interpersonally or collectively, and that having the ability to be with people we find difficult who are our oppo- who seem to be opponents or doing destructive things and not, become, not move into the old <coughs> habitual tendencies to polarize and demonize and judge negatively and be harsh, I think is actually key to real social change and and transformative work. So how do we do this? Ready to sign up? (laughs) Maybe it's helpful first to talk about, uh, you know, what, what an enemy is or what a difficult person is and to see how this forms in one's own life. And it's really to to look at people with whom there is tension, with whom there is difficulty. It could be on various levels. 
It could just be people. And part of the way we'll see that we train is to uh, work with less difficult people, people we just have some slight tension with, and to work with that. But to see basically uh, a difficult person or an enemy as someone with whom, for, with whom <coughs> certain difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, uh, irritation, challenges, you know, uh, chemistry that's far from working well. <laughs> You know, you know what it is, and to and to to see that, and some of, and it's also important to acknowledge that some of what makes uh, things difficult can be connected, and this is apparent with Gandhi and the examples of Gandhi and King can be connected also with more collective dimensions. There are dimensions of uh, ethnicity, race, gender, class, sexual orientation, and so forth which can sometimes be part of the background of difficult relationships or conflict. I think we, we know that you know, with individuals. There can always be those dimensions as well. And there also, I think, are actually parts of oneself that are difficult. And there may be even parts of oneself that are, in a sense, one's enemy. And that's interesting, and we'll be looking at those parallels between seeing parts of oneself that are difficult and parts of others, you know, and because there can be very strong connections. Uh, the psychologist Carl Jung said that those parts of ourselves which we don't know and in a sense come to be um, comfortable with, we tend to um, disown and project out into the world where we encounter others as enemies and as demons. That which we haven't faced in ourselves, we tend to project outward and see as demonic. And I think I've at one point said that this explains a good deal of international politics. <laughs> this fact, you know, and foreign relations, you know. Uh, countries routinely in their propaganda do exactly that. Um, you know, or um, there was a, there's a Zen teacher and, and psychologist, John Tarrant, who said, the courage with which we, carry our, that which we face our own darkness and carry our own darkness prevents others from having to carry it for us. So how do we practice? We're interested in looking at the challenging relationships in our lives and practicing and working with that core intention to aspire towards having one's default way of being be that of warmth and kindness, which is the intention of our practice. How to do that? I want to mention some foundational practices. And I'll mention um, three areas, which are the classical areas of training, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. These are the areas of training that go back 2,500 years. And I'll talk about the ethical dimension briefly. I'll talk much more about the meditative dimension, particularly focusing on mindfulness and loving-kindness practice. And then I'll talk a little more briefly about um, some wisdom dimensions on how to work with that. So first, it's very important in working with people who are challenging for oneself to keep with one's ethical practice. That it can be a real tendency, oh, this person is really doing awful things, therefore I'll do awful things, or a little bit awful things. You know, it can be very easy. There was a, there was a um, article in this morning's San Francisco Chronicle, which I looked at before coming here, which has the story in the uh, Bay Area section of that newspaper of a very well-esteemed scholar of climate change named uh, Peter uh, Gleick, who was so upset by what some of the opponents of um, advocates of climate change were doing that, that he, he actually um, ceased to act ethically. He took on a pseudonym, joined 
this organization called the Heartland Institute, which was putting out a lot of literature disputing climate change. He put out a, uh, he, he made a he took a pseudonym, got into the organization, I don't know if in some way as a member and so forth, had access to some of their material and published it on the web. And um, he actually may be, and probably most likely, committed some crimes in doing that, is at legal risk. He made this public and he said this, my judgment was blinded by my frustration with efforts to attack climate science. And his being caught up in that opposition led him to act unethically. It's interesting, isn't it? You know? And it's a cautionary tale. You know? And it's probably, this is the sort of thing that actually probably will have done much more damage to, as it were, his cause than if he hadn't done that. You know? But he thought that he wouldn't be caught. <laughs> Right? And so working with the ethical guidelines is really crucial and something really to focus on. I have a difficult relation with someone. Let me follow, let me actually even more so work with the ethical guidelines, you know, which in a simple way we talk about as follow, they're, they're basically following guidelines to, uh, to not harm others, to not take that which is not given and to be very careful with one's speech, one's sexuality, and using substances which shift consciousness. I think most of us are familiar. These are called the lay precepts, the five lay precepts in Buddhist practice. And so, again, very, very central, and it's no coincidence that the beginning of the Metta Sutta, the core text on loving-kindness practice, starts with an invocation of the need to follow ethical guidelines. If you remember that text, it starts like this. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Right at the beginning of the core text on how you develop this loving-kindness practice, the ethical dimension, quite crucial. And then we can also look at mindfulness practice. And mindfulness and metta as examples of the secondary of training, which is the training in our meditation, in our, what we do with our practice. And we can be invited, really, to study what our mind does, what our hearts do, when we have opponents when we have difficult people, when we have people that we're frustrated with, when we have so-called enemies. What does the mind do? And we can study that. You know, and we know some, a lot of what it does. What does it do? There's anger, there's frustration, there's irritation, there's self-righteousness, there's harsh judgment of self often, or of other, especially of other. <laughs> you know, And you can study it when you're in a little bit of a tense situation, study what that's like. Can you, can you feel, for example, a tendency to polarize with the other, where kind of like a wall goes up, right? And, you're, you know, we're basically saying, I have no interest in treating you like a human being. You are an obstacle for me. Something like that. Can you f feel that, you know? It could be just as you leave here, someone um, cuts you off or someone does something really that you don't like when you're driving. Watch what the mind and heart do. Watch where we go. Study that. Study your own patterns. This is a core part of how we train to develop the ability ultimately to love one's enemies. And we practice, as in our metta practice, we start I mean, we want to be mindful as best we can with all of the examples where there are difficult experiences, but we, we can find that we actually can really benefit maybe even more in the beginning or as we are progressing by studying mild irritation, mild or moderate examples, because I can guarantee you the habit forms are going to be the same as with your most difficult people. What you'll find 
working in your mind will be very, very parallel. So what we can do is we take it on to be like a research project. What do I actually do with my mind, my body, my heart? How does my body tense up? And we have to study it. We study it for a few reasons. One reason is that as we study it, we become more and more familiar and we're able to notice it closer to the origin, closer to the beginning of that mind state occurring than previously. And it's also okay if you got totally wrapped up, if I get totally wrapped up in a difficult relationship and say, and remember three hours later, oh, I was supposed to research that. I guess I didn't. <laughs> right? It's okay to come back later and say, okay, what happened? What was going on for me? So a certain amount of reflection can be really valuable in this, in this kind of situation. Mm. So we study the emotions, we hang out with it to become really skillful <coughs> in being able to have warmth ultimately towards difficult people. We have to be really experts in studying our own anger, irritation, judgment, fear, sadness, all these emotions we have to be familiar with and study them. And as we study them more and more, we start to get a sense of what we do. And it's a very natural that, as it were, alternatives will come to the fore. Oh, this is what I tend to do when I get triggered in this way. When there's a person who um, acts meanly towards me or doesn't listen to what I'm saying, or seems to act so-called disrespectfully. Here's where my mind goes. Here's where my body goes. We have to study that continually. This is the curriculum if we're interested in developing metta to a stronger degree or to a higher degree. If we're interested in aspiring towards this beautiful vision of having warmth and kindness and love as our default ways of being. And we're all in training for this. You know, we're all in training for this. And then we can practice metta. We can practice loving kindness. If you're interested in this, I would, and I would suggest if you want to take this on in the next two weeks, practice loving kindness every day for at least 10 minutes. And work with it. That has to become strong. You know, we, again, uh, to start just with the loving kindness practice, the way loving kindness practice works is we have to start where it's easiest. We don't start with bringing loving kindness to a difficult person. We start where it's easiest. For some of us, that's towards ourselves. For others, it could be towards someone we love very much. We typically start with bringing loving kindness towards either ourselves or towards people with whom we, ha- with whom we have almost entirely positive experiences. And so I would say, if you haven't done so much loving-kindness practice, start there. Don't even think about the difficult people too much. Start with getting the loving-kindness strong. As it gets stronger, we can gradually start bringing it into the uh, relationships with others. And in some of the future meetings, I'll bring in compassion practice and forgiveness practice in relationship to people we have difficulties with or what we call enemies. and so we work up to that. But I would, and we can talk more about metta uh, in the in the in the next sessions. And the last area I want to talk about as a practice, we can call a wisdom practice. And I'll, this is where I'll do a guided meditation. But one thing that wisdom practice can help us with, in terms of being with difficult people or people we call enemies, there are a few ways we can work with it. One is to Um, reflect on the causes and conditions that led this person to be as he or she is, which is an act of empathy. You know, and I know that for me, I had this insight, probably, I I remember this happened like maybe 10 years ago, I had a chronic challenging relationship with someone in the work situation who seemed to be my nemesis who always seemed, if I had a great idea, this person has certain kinds of power, was able to squash it, you know. Uh, Anyone have someone like that? (laughs) You know, and and it would be like a typical dance we would do. I would have a good idea, 
and I would, I would get angry, frustrated, judgmental, whatever. And then uh, one morning, the same thing happened. And I, st- I noticed my mind starting to complain and become judgmental. And something in me said, I'm doing the same thing again. Do I want to go down that route one more time? And it led me, and instead I said, you know, we're both doing this for reasons. There are reasons in his background, there are reasons in my background, there are reasons in the institutional background for things being as they are. Can I contemplate all those reasons, you know, at least three areas of reasons, his background, my background, the institutional background, and see the causes and conditions which are supporting things happening as they are. It was very, very illuminating. I did that for quite some time, and it led to both uh, a sense of more empathy and compassion for him, for me, and for us. And also, uh, it allowed me to um, really to see my own tendencies that in some ways were not based on the wisdom of really seeing causes and conditions. I was just being triggered in certain ways, and I wasn't really bringing in the wisdom dimension. This is something that we can do. We can actually reflect. You know, it can be a reflection. Take someone who's difficult in your life and reflect on where that person is coming from. What are the causes and conditions that are there? A further step is then actually to try to be empathic. What is this person feeling? What's important for this person? Because when we get polarized, typically, empathy and any concern for the other person's lived experience usually goes out the window, right? And it's just polarization. I want this. I'm not getting my way. This person's bad. Very little room for empathy. And as we practice with these approaches, so another practice you can do is with a person with whom you have some minor irritation or moderate difficulty, do this reflection and see if you can also, first, maybe in a guided, in a reflection, maybe in your meditation, can I feel what this other person might be feeling with me, when that person is with me? Can I be empathic? Can I have a sense of what's important for this person? And that becomes the way to connect. And I think I'll play now this uh, passage. This is a passage from uh, Dr. King, talking about his approach to someone who seemed to be a very difficult person in his life. So I'll play this for just a few minutes, and then I think we'll do one further guided practice. Huge floods of gold and silver. Oop, that's the radio, sorry. <laughs> Oops. Okay. Um, okay, sorry. <laughs> it's interesting. It all happened because of France. Um, because they hung out in the campaigns of the Vietnam War. And um, at that time, dollars were redeemable for gold in other countries. And Charles de Gaulle decided to call it bluff. Oh, I see. I see what it was. Okay. No, I think I'm in there.
a riot to take place. First time I'd ever seen a, the date set for a riot. But brother, a brother there who is the leader of the nationalists, the black nationalists of Cleveland, and he had announced the date for the riot to take place. First time I'd ever seen a, the date set for a riot. But Brother Ahmed announced the date for the riot. And they had pledged that they were going to run me out of town, that they were not going to hear anything about nonviolence, that if I came to Cleveland, they were going to run me out. So they were set to run me out of town. But when I got to Cleveland, I had a lot of speeches around the high schools and a number of other places. And I decided that I was going right on over to Huff and meet with Mr. Ahmed and his fellows, and I was going to speak to them and talk to them as brother. I got over there. They were ready to run me out. I didn't open my speech by criticizing them or judging them. I didn't stand up self-righteously say, I'm nonviolent and you are violent. You believe in uh, riots and you are killing the Negro race and hurting the cause of civil rights. I didn't start out like that. I started out saying to Mr. Ahmed, I understand your frustrations. I understand your bitterness. I understand what you've gone through. I understand why you're reacting like you're reacting. And I put my arms around Brother Ahmed, and pretty soon Brother Ahmed had his arms around me. I had my press conference the next day, and who was sitting at the press table but Mr. Ahmed? And the press said, now, Dr. King has talked about nonviolence, and he's talked about the movement that they're going to have here in Cleveland. Mr. Ahmed, since you believe in violence, what do you have to say about what Dr. King just said? He said, I want you to know I agree with him, and he's my leader, too. If I had gone in there, crushing out Mr. Ahmed, if I had gone in judging and criticizing Mr. Ahmed, Mr. Ahmed would have been permanently separated from me. This is what Jesus is saying. Judge not for in your judging. You may judge yourself to be unkind, unsympathetic, unfeeling for. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll do the uh, guided meditation next time, but my, my invitation would be in, in working with this kind of practice, what you can do is simply to reflect, very much as in the example, to reflect on what this person has gone through that leads up to where that person is. Some of it will be imaginative. We don't know everything. But we can imagine that, to reflect on that, and to do that possibly as a practice that you do at the end of the meditation, to reflect on the causes and conditions, what's there for that person. And then if you can, to move further to a stance of empathy. What is this person feeling with me? Not very easy. And what's important for this person? What we're doing there is we're not, as it were, wiping out the other person's subjectivity, which typically happens when we get polarized. The other person simply becomes an obstacle to something that I want. So my invitation for the next two weeks is to practice in this way. Remember, remembering these three areas of practicing. First, working with ethical guidelines. Secondly, studying our own minds and bodies and hearts with mindfulness. Uh, thirdly, doing the metta practice, t- ten minutes a day. And then fourthly, the wisdom practice of contemplating causes and conditions that are there both Uh, that lead to my behavior, my experience, and that lead to that for the other. So this is my invitation for for these four practices will be uh, very, very helpful towards moving, with initial foundational practices, moving towards this very beautiful, powerful, and sometimes seemingly lofty ideal of 
developing metta towards all beings, towards having love even for one's enemies. So I'll stop here. So some time for questions, discussion, reflections of any kind. Uh, Please. Last night I watched uh, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's uh, son, being interviewed. Yeah. On that big thing that's happening, what he said about Obama. And I had no way in, 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 in myself uh, politically to look at him and have any understanding of where he was going because he was going down a road that to me was so wrong. Yeah. And as I hear you today, I, talk about, I can do that in much of my life, but when I get into the political thing, I really lose it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the quest- question is, and maybe again we can use the microphone for further questions, because I think that helps with anyone who's listening to this uh, via the internet or, or the recording. So the question is really about uh, uh, listening to a particular uh, political figure with whom there's strong political agreement and having just, uh, what, no capacity really to be empathic or to be in- interested in that person's perspective? I was interested, but I was very angry. Very angry. Okay. So, the, uh, it's useful to remember that this is at the high level of difficulty on the spectrum. We practice with minor or moderate challenges, and we work up to these. We naturally all want to go to the most difficult. And, uh, you know, and it could, it could take time with someone like this. I mean, I, I found, for example, uh, but you can, you can rest guaranteed that there is something probably that you would even be sympathetic towards in that person's experience leading, in this case, him, right? to the ideas that he has. Uh, it may be beneath the surface quite a bit, you know, because sometimes what happens on the political realm is that we go very far removed from experience and things get crystallized into ideologies in which the connection with experience is sometimes hard to track. You know, you know, so someone who may be very fearful will buy into a whole ideology with all sorts of assumptions and it's hard to track it back to the human experiences, but one can do this. And it may, it may be through being with an actual person who has that kind of views that you actually have some connection with and explore that person. I, I can think of a lot of examples in my own experience. Uh, we once did a retreat, uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship and some other groups once did a retreat at, Lar- at uh, the uh, Los Alamos Laboratories in New Mexico. We did a retreat and we, we uh, meditated in the parking lot for five days. And we had meetings at, at, uh, in the evenings. And, and during the, for the lunch, we went and ate in the Los Alamos cafeteria and met with scientists, many of whom were, were uh, involved in the construction of nuclear weapons. And we would talk with them. And <coughs> that was a chance actually to connect in some ways with people with whom there were big disagreements for, for most of us. And it was very interesting to see the members of our group. Some people had a very hard time getting anywhere. You know, it was not easy to really get anywhere with those discussions. But they had to be able to drop their views and try to listen for what was there. It was a very interesting experience. And I also think of having taught, um, before I came to California, I spent seven years in Kentucky and rural Ohio. And in Kentucky, I taught a lot of students. I was at the University of Kentucky for four years. Taught a lot of students who, who call themselves fundamentalists. And got to know them a lot. Some of them studied Buddhism with me. <laughs> uh, 
uh, anyway, I could go, go, go more into that, but, but I think the point is that <coughs> sometimes it may take uh, an actual relationship or listener. In our, when I was teaching there, I taught ethics classes, and we had discussions, which I probably have mentioned from time to time, with people with very, very different views, some of them very, very strongly held. For example, we were able to have respectful discussions about abortion with people who had very, very strong religiously based views, some of which could be called fundamentalist. And we got to a place where people could hear each other. But it's not easy. So, but, but the, so that's one point. The other point is we really practice for that by watching our own mind tendencies with less charged and less difficult areas. Because like I said, the mind tendencies I think are going to be the same, even with the easier stuff like how you are with someone that you just have, that you know, that you know pretty well, but you just get into a political discussion with have different views, probably some of the same roots of thoughts will, will be there. So it's something to look at. Yeah, does that make some sense? Yeah. Um, others, other questions, reflections? Please, yeah. Um, the question is about uh, what I'm doing with, um, in relation to speech practice, and I'll particularly connect it with the theme that we've just explored. So the second, the first part is developing foundational speech practices, being able to follow ethical guidelines in speaking, refinement of what I talked about earlier, and to also to develop gradually the capacity to be mindful of one's own experience in the midst of speech, which goes a long way towards this. Because normally, a lot of times when we're speaking, we're just on automatic. How can I, in the act of speech, be more mindful? Crucial capacity for what we're talking about generally. Then the afternoon, we'll focus especially on working with difficult speech, and I'll focus on a few areas, some of which we've explored here. I'll bring in the theme of how when we get in conflictual areas, we tend to, to uh, go up the ladder of inference. Remember that model that we used here? We, we, we tend to get far removed from direct experience and go into assumptions, conclusions, and that go way beyond, as it were, the data. We'll talk about, so we'll partly talk about how the mind works. And this is something we, we can explore also some later in the sessions here. So, we, we want to study how the mind works and, how, and, and to speak in a way which doesn't just let the mind run away. Because typically of fear or anxiety or getting triggered, which is uh, yeah, something that we all do on, on any side. And then we also will do a lot of practices related to empathy. Developing empathy towards the other. You know, uh, different practices and to see uh, also to work with mindfulness to see what happens for me when I get triggered and how can I use speech in a skillful way when I get triggered with another person. That's a over, short overview. Please. Uh, Donald, could you please repeat the four uh, suggestions of uh, what uh, we're, we could The four suggested with? areas practice. And I'm thinking of these as foundational areas if you feel called to move uh, in the direction of having metta or loving-kindness be more and more your way of approaching everyone and the whole world, which is our practice, uh, then the four areas would be um, work with the ethical guidelines. This may simply be to remember them every morning. could just take a few minutes. You can read the ethical guidelines or to think about them, study them. Or could mean in a particular challenging situation, before you go into this challenging meeting, reflect on following the ethical precepts. It can, for example, be um, focused in the area of speech, since so much happens in speech. And you could focus and say, I'm going to try to follow the ethical guidelines related to speech in this interaction, which are to be truthful, to be helpful, to generally try to be, come out of warmth and kindness, which can be very firm and you know, set boundaries and have like tough love and all that. And then the last one is have good timing and have appropriateness. 
those, those four speech guidelines go a long way towards bringing the ethical guidelines into difficult interactions. So that's the ethical, working with ethical guidelines, number one. Number two, mindfulness. Studying your patterns of reactivity, getting triggered, polarizing. Study what your mind and body and emotions do when there are difficult people or when you feel polarized, when there's a difficult interaction. That's the second area. Third area is to develop, is to uh, keep the quality of metta getting stronger. And I simply generalize this for the next two weeks as meaning do metta ten minutes a day where it flows the easiest. Don't even think about difficult people. You know, just do it where it flows the best. You know, and later we we'll, can bring that into uh, being with difficult people. And then the fourth area is bringing in more the wisdom dimension that sees, you know, that sees this web of causes and conditions and has understanding. Or it's like the French say, where there's understanding, there tends to be following that compassion and forgiveness. You know, what's the French phrase? I keep forgetting that. To understand is to forgive, basically. How does that go in French? Anyone know that? Oublier is to forget. So, yes. but, okay. yeah. but it's something about basically. It's basically saying if I really understand someone, I forgive. Or it's like the the uh, Henry Longfellow quote that Sylvia and I both like and probably offer from time to time, which is I'm paraphrasing it. If we would really understand the pains and sorrows and experiences of our enemies we would only be filled with compassion and forgiveness. Yeah, that's from uh, Longfellow. Maybe I'll, I'll bring that in. You, you know it exactly? Oh, no, I was going to suggest yeah. the also um, one that a friend of mine always signs off on her emails, which is uh, an Americanized version translation of a Plato, mm-hmm. which is uh, be kinder Be kinder than no, you think you need to be. Yeah, I have a, I have a dear friend uh, who, on her, on her phone message, say, please leave your message and be kinder to yourself than you think you need to be. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm sure she has no copyright on that, so go ahead. Uh, but uh, be, be kind to, to yourself and everyone because everyone is, quote, unquote, fighting the battle or maybe some other language. So it would be to reflect, I I was encouraging two ways to develop that wisdom practice, which is basically a practice of understanding causes and conditions. One of them is just to reflect on on the causes and conditions that are behind a particular difficult interaction. It could be, as in my example, it could be reflecting on what's there for the other person, on myself, could be even on reflecting on the institution. In our instance, you know, in our instance, you know, the institution tended to overwork people, right? So that was, that was a cause, significant cause. So, and then the other aspect of that is to try to do that not just cognitively, but also more empathically and emotionally. Can I feel what this person is feeling? It could be done as a meditation exercise. Let me just imagine what this person is feeling gradually we get to the point where in the midst of the interaction we can be empathic towards someone with whom there's difficulty, as in the example with Dr. King. He had developed to a sufficient degree where he went right into this tense situation and had that quality of empathy as his natural way of being. Right? Quite remarkable, right? With profound and beautiful results in this instance. Quite, quite something. So those are the four. and. I see those as foundational practices, and we'll expand and build on that in the uh, further sessions. Yeah. So let's sit now quietly. And two reflections. First on what was most helpful from the morning, whether related to the theme or not. could be something else. And then secondly, reflect on your intentions for this next period of practice.
So we, we close by remembering very clear from the theme of the day that we practice for ourselves, we practice for others, and ultimately we practice for all beings.